Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you for braving the cold weather this morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings again, chapter 21, page 311. Probably most of us have a pretty strong sense of justice, and if you're watching a TV crime show or movie, uh, they better get the bad guy, right? We, they, um, we, we want to see it all come together and pay back, and we kind of go, yes, and that makes us feel good. The justice bug hit me again the other day. I was uh, heading north on I-43 and just driving along, and all of a sudden, the car comes along the left, and it's just like, you know. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, 85 mile an hour, maybe more. And you know my first thought? This would be a really good time to see some red and blue flashing lights. <laughs> For him. I mean, I was only going five, maybe a little more than five, eight over maybe. But justice for him and, you know, to stop me would be injustice. You know, um, today we're, the stakes are a lot higher is what, what we're looking at today because um, it's about sin in degrees. We would all probably agree in this room, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then there's the real sinners. Today we meet a real sinner. And we begin to see what extreme evil looks like and maybe we'll just begin to understand extravagant grace. Verses 1 and 2 were in the series of kings, descendants of David who ruled over Judah. This is uh, late 600s B.C. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Uh, he imitated the evil nations dating way back at the beginning of the, the history of Israel. Manasseh is the son of the good and godly king Hezekiah that we've been studying the last several weeks. It doesn't mention it in verse 1, but the last verse of the previous chapter uh, clarifies that. Manasseh is also one of the tribes of northern Israel, so he must have been named by his father after that tribe in northern Israel. Maybe a couple decades earlier when godly Hezekiah was uh, reaching out to the remaining people in the northern kingdom uh, with Passover invitations. He was, he was 12 years old. How does a 12-year-old become king? We don't know how each royal transition worked, but uh, sometimes a king would be uh, crowned very early as a youngster because of an untimely death of a dad uh, or unique situations like that. We studied Joash, who became king at age six, uh, by title, of course, and then other officials would have to step in to guide him until he was of age. But other times it seems that what kings did was to appoint a son as a co-regent while they were young just to make it clear who would be the rightful heir uh, to the throne. And that is more likely what happened here, that Manasseh ruled alongside his dad as co-regent uh, officially for some time. 
which would have given him a great time to understand and be trained in godliness, but somehow, as too often happens, he did not follow dad's good example. He rejected not just the example of his dad, but he rejected everything about God's law and God's uh, will and word. So uh, it, it's probably even a blessing if you think of it from Hezekiah's perspective that he didn't live long enough to see how his son turned out because he followed the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out. I mean, that's going back, that's a rewind 700 plus years to when Joshua was leading the people of Israel into the promised land and God was punishing the pagans that they were displacing. God was evicting them to give this land. And, and that was the model. That's how, that's how low he stooped in his evil. And then verses 3 through 9 now describe how he reversed, unraveled the good progress in the nation that his dad had made. Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took, a carved, took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers. If only they would be careful to do everything I've commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. It's like an inventory of evil. It's like if he could find something evil or more evil to do, that was the path he took, starting in verse 3, the high places. It, it was so many generations. Even the good kings were not eliminating the high places until finally Hezekiah had done that, and now he flips that and reestablishes the high places that were used often, most often, for false worship. Baal and Asherah are the dual uh, deities uh, of the day, really, male and female, thought to bring fertility and thus financial prosperity to crops and families. That's all back. He put up altars in the temple to the starry hosts. If you imagine the establishment of the temple, the holy place, the holy of holies, and he moved stuff out and moved idolatry in. Unimaginably defiling the place. And then four terms, sorcery, divinations, medium, spiritists. In other words, anything occult he was in. This is, this is not just innocent. and it's, it's connected to idolatry. Idolatry is not just about some foolish objects that people are crazy to worship. There's an empowering of the spirit world, and he dove deep into the demon world, the, the darkest of the dark. 
Because Satan is at the bottom of human evil. Stimulating evil every way he possibly can. How, how bad can demons influence individuals? It, to me, it actually, demon possession helps me, helps me try to understand the Hitlers and the, the Mussolinis and Saddams and Stalins. To just, how can people be that evil to just kill off people and be so uncaring? And there is something dark, something demonic behind all that. Verse 6 tells us how evil Manasseh himself became. He even sacrificed his son in the fire. Seriously? Who, who, would, who would bring your living child and toss it into a fire if there was not demonic involvement? But wait, don't we remember reading about this a few kings back? He wasn't the first king of Judah to do it. In fact, it was his grandpa Ahaz who did the same thing. He, that's Ahaz, followed the ways of the kings of Israel, the north, did this, Ahab, etc., even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In fact, it's almost like from chapter 16 that, that these verses are like copy and paste. From Manasseh, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, he sacrificed his own son in the fire. So really he was imitating Grandpa Ahaz. Kind of scary being a grandpa sometimes. As grandparents, we can never think that our, we will outlive our influence for good or for bad. Because every kid eventually grows up and learns about the generation that raised mom and dad. And what they will remember, what they will hear, will be character. Um, character reverberates long after our accomplishments or money or good looks are forgotten. They will be aware of the kind of person we were or are. Only take one generation to obliterate the godly example of dad, and he chose as his model, really, maybe unthinkingly, but he will have known about Ahaz, and he followed him. The Asherah pole, verse 7. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made. I mean, are we to understand that this royal king somehow went to the royal shop and made himself an Asherah pole? Maybe he just commissioned it. Asherah poles from that era have been found by archaeologists and they range from some simple log-like uh, depictions to basically pornographic female statues that represented this deity. He put it right in the middle of the temple. We are, we are rightly repulsed by Manasseh and then we realize that the spiritual warfare that we see all around us is really unchanged. Because the same enemy is, is pumping out the enticements of our day of lust and, and greed and, and power. And, and I know that you know, Satan's effects are out there in the world, but if I were to imagine the enemy's thinking, he is... His major targets are believers. 
He prowls around looking for some one of us to devour. Christians, Christian kids. We have to be aware that the, the, the enticements to sin, now especially so readily available, have Satan's fingerprints on them. Uh, the, the, the perverse image, the godless ideas that are, that are in filtering, filtering into everything have a source. And it's, it's the other side, and that's what, that's what Manasseh was into. He was, he was playing for the other side. It can be discouraging until we see who we are as believers, especially in this unique church age. You realize as a believer that God himself, by his spirit, lives within you. That's why you feel the tension of all these things so, so acutely because the Holy Spirit lives within us. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who lives in you than he who is in the world. So he's out there, but you are actually a dwelling place. When you think about how Satan works, Satan is not God's equal and opposite. Satan does not read your mind. He just knows how you think, just like you can figure out how each other thinks sometimes. He knows how we think, but he, does not, he is not infinite. He cannot read your mind. He cannot make you do anything. He just makes bait and sets traps. And then we're enticed, James says, by our own evil desires, unless we are led by the Spirit of God. And that is, our, that is our hope, that is our confidence, because God himself does know our mind, does speak to our hearts, and actually empowers us to resist and overcome sin. It's, it's, it's a great truth that we have to understand as we see extreme evil all around us. So, he did even more, verse 9, it says he led the nation astray. Our positions of influence uh, are, are part of what we're accountable for. So what will God do to Manasseh, this evil king? Well, verse 10 begins to tell us, the Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria, that's the northern capital, and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab, the uh, classic uh, evil king of the north. But now I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it, turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes. So God is, is acknowledging it's time. It's time to judge. It's time to discipline his own people whom he has resisted all these years to judge completely. He uses several metaphors. First of all, he says, people who hear about what I'm going to do to my people, their ears will tingle. You know, you know that ringing you get in your ears if you've been exposed to really high decibel levels? And if you listen to a, rock, a lot of rock concerts when you were young, I can repeat that a little louder. Or if you ride a Harley. Uh, the second metaphor is the plumb line. Uh, without modern tools 
to level and set up building, they would, they would use a, a, a string with a weight at the bottom, and, and if you let that thing become still, now you can make your, your corner uh, perfectly straight. So we're measured against God's holiness. No, we're not measured against one another. You're better than you, and I think I'm better than him. We're measured against the holiness of God. And then the third one is this wiping out of the dish. If you imagine a very, very dirty dish, you just had spaghetti, and you lay aside a dish, and you forget about it in the corner of the counter, and it sits there a week or two. Now you got dried ragu and crusty noodles and a little piece of meatball getting moldy. You can't imagine using it. You can't imagine putting it back in your cabinet. You can't imagine serving something on it until you have absolutely cleansed that dish, wiping it all out, turning, making sure it's really clean. And, and this is a picture. Jerusalem is the dish, and, and God's going to clean house. Jerusalem will still be there. The pe- people will be evicted and taken to Babylon Spoiler alert for chapter 25. Verse 15, why? Because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger. From the day their forefathers came out of Egypt until this day. This this king not only lived like the nations that God had evicted so that they could have the promised land, but now God is looking at his people with the, with the seven, eight hundred year view to say they have been doing this over and over and over and over and it's time to discipline them. So this is not some impulsive, angry reaction of God. This is the culmination of a generational sin that has continued and God's been extremely patient. God's been extremely gracious. We might have, if you read through the Old Testament, you might wonder, why didn't God do this sooner? That's our sense of justice, of course. Verse 16 adds another sin. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he caused you to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So uh, the idea is that there are people all, people who are innocent had been killed by Manasseh all over Jerusalem. There's actually an ancient tradition, not specifically stated in Scripture, but possible that Manasseh was the one who executed Isaiah, the prophet who, of course, wrote our book, but also was the one who ministered to his dad, Hezekiah. Um, Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.37 refers to some who were sawn in two, and that's somehow part of that tradition, perhaps, that's how Isaiah died. We don't know. And this guy reigned 55 years. H- how in God's plan did he allow the worst king to reign the longest in Judah? I don't have the answer, and God doesn't have to explain himself. Well, that's pretty much the story of Manasseh, so we can get out early today. Not... Turn with me to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10, page 370, where again we are given the rest of the story. Um, 
We've been disgusted with Manasseh. He's flipped his dad's spiritual reforms upside down, hauling in idol junk into God's temple, stooping to child sacrifice, executing the innocent and the godly and who knows what other dark and ugly sins. He's heard God's message of condemnation and coming judgment, but 2 Kings, where we've been, doesn't record any discipline that he faced personally for his sin. Uh, 2 Chronicles does. In fact, we might even find the we're going to start at verse 10. We might find verses 10 and 11 almost a little bit satisfying, like seeing the red and blue flashing lights for someone else, right? Verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. They had a chance. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh personally, prisoner, put a hook in his nose bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. The Assyria-Babylon thing is not a misprint. Uh, Assyria was still the superpower at this point. Babylon is like a region or a piece of their vast kingdom. They, they put a hook in his nose, probably literal, because it was a way in which a conquering king could totally humiliate a nation that he has defeated by taking the notable leader and putting a livestock ring and chain through their nose. And we're not surprised, really, at God's justice. In this, we might nod in approval a little bit to realize that he got his due. But as we keep reading, we are, we are maybe almost shocked at what happens next in verse 12. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And we might th- I mean, just like that, The reckless speeder gets a warning ticket? How can God let Manasseh off the hook? Literally. That's not fair. That's not just. And that's true. That's grace. Extravagant. Unthinkable. Sometimes God's grace can bother us, frankly, because... We want, we want people to pay. It's easy enough to relish the idea of grace for our sin. Moderate, managed sin, right? But we hesitate to think of God's grace for certain people, especially if they've hurt us. Will there be murderers in heaven? Moses comes to mind and David, and Paul the accomplice. But what if it was your Egyptian husband whom Moses killed? What if Uriah was your brother 
for whom David ordered the hit. What if Stephen was your dad or your husband where Paul was agreeing to him being stoned? And, and then you hear that Paul got saved, you know, and he comes back to Jerusalem years later and gives a testimony and everybody's so thrilled. Or if indeed Isaiah was executed by Manasseh, what, what if you were Isaiah's wife? And now Manasseh comes back to town transformed. See, God's grace is wonderful when we receive it or when someone receives it who has not personally hurt us. But sometimes God's grace is really hard to understand. And if we're, we have to be honest enough to say we are really novices at understanding God and especially his grace. It's almost like we like our, dose, our, 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 our grace in small doses, usually defined as, you know, our sin. We may think, Manasseh didn't deserve God's grace. Now, think about that statement. Manasseh didn't deserve God's grace. What is the definition of grace? Undeserved favor. Of course he didn't deserve God's grace. And neither do we. It's just that when grace goes beyond our sense of reason, reason it kind of shocks us. And, and yet, as we're feeling that tension, we are maybe just now getting a taste of what God's grace really means. Because actually, all of our sin, all of it, and I mean our, this room, all of our sin is repulsive to God. It is so repulsive to God that he could not let any of it slide with a wink. And if we think we hate serious sin, we can only imagine how much God hates all sin when you see it through the eyes of perfect holiness. And that's why God had to pour out his wrath on all sin. His grace is so unthinkable that he did the unthinkable to address sin. And he sent his son to bear the penalty of any sin of anybody in this room. That's grace. And that grace had a profound effect on Manasseh. End of verse 13, it says, Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. I want to think that that's when Manasseh was saved, to use our New Testament terminology. And it's great to see that uh, the chronicler can tell us how that transformed him. That's what, that's what grace should do. And so verses 14 and following tell that story. Verse 14 tells, first of all, about some truly good civic improvements he made to Jerusalem. But let's jump to verse 15. He got rid of the foreign gods. And removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God. So, so the foreign gods, he got rid of them. 
When grace begins to transform us, there's stuff to get rid of. They removed the images from the temple. Restored the altar. This is what repentance looks like. It, it seems that he did all that he could after having reversed what his dad did. Now he's trying to reverse what he himself has done. Because true humility is what leads to repentance. That is the key word in verse 12. Humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Humbled himself. Spiritual growth. If you're interested in spiritual growth, is a process, a lifelong process of humility and repentance. I mean, this was a big transforming moment, and sometimes we need big transforming moments, but really the whole process of what we sometimes call sanctification is a continual repentance based on a continual growing in the depth of humility. I know through the years... God has to continually address sins of motive and attitude, selfishness in me. If we, if we ignore the root causes of sin, we've only kind of like put band-aids on our sin nature. Manasseh started in, late in life, unfortunately, but yet he does seem very sincere. He, he seeks to tell Judah to serve the Lord. So there's the humility of saying, I was wrong. When's the last time you said that? I've been wrong. That's humbling yourself. How did it go over? Well, we're a little disappointed in verse uh, 17. They continued to sacrifice at the high places because we'd have liked to have seen that he completely removed them again. And we maybe even question the sincerity of those who now claim to only use them to worship the Lord. Uh, we hope that went well. But the reality is that when we have influenced others towards evil, there is no guarantee that we can uninfluence them back. And so Manasseh really leaves a, a mixed legacy of both great sin and God's great grace. Verse 18, the other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to God and the words of the seers spoke to, the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all of his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles before he humbled himself, are all written in the record of the seers. Now we have some of those records in our prophets. We have some in Second Kings, but there are things mentioned here we don't have. I'd love to see exactly you know, what was his prayer. He, he wrote it down. It was an important transforming moment in his life of humility and repentance. We don't have it all, but the people of then evidently did. Maybe they could look it up. It was a book in their you know, Hebrew library so they could see what repentance looks like. And then we see the, uh, the real contrast in verse 19 of how God was moved by his, his repentance and entreaty, but also there's still all his sin and unfaithfulness. So there's really kind of Manasseh 1.0 and Manasseh 2.0. We can read on here, it was also in, uh, in 2 Kings about his son, Ammon. After he died, verse 20, after Manasseh died, verse 20, uh, verse 21 says, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 
two, count them, years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He, did, he, he, he copied the first version of dad. Ammon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon increased his guilt. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his, in his palace. So his own officials assassinated him. Then the people of the land killed all those who plotted against King Ammon. And they made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Uh, there was some sense of, of justice that uh, uh, Ammon had to go, and then that's his officials. And then the people said, no, you shouldn't be murdering the king, uh, child of, uh, descendant of David, and they are keeping the line of David and Josiah's where we'll study next. But we're really left, we see that it's too late to change Ammon. The, the, the damage had been done. And we're left with really a mixed set of lessons from Manasseh because on one hand we see the depth of his sin, but we also gasp at God's grace and know that we have a lot to learn about his grace. So let's look at uh, four grace principles. These are also printed in your outline. God's grace is never limited by the seriousness of sin. How far can grace be stretched? Um, we've sung of grace this morning. Last week we uh, sang in the hymn uh, the lyrics, Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. Infinite grace. Infinite grace is required for any and all sin. And judgment is required for any and all sin. It's undeserved. So the fact that one person is worse than another is really irrelevant to the doctrine of heaven because grace is required for anyone to be in heaven because that's what grace is. So be prepared to not only meet Moses, David, and Paul, but Manasseh in heaven, because in heaven we will have a celebration of the grace of God. That's what it's about. Paul wrote, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, different, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. He sees us through that lens of Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Heaven is a showcase of the grace of God. Starting with you and me. God's ultimate desire is not to judge. His ultimate desire is to be praised for his grace. Second principle, God's grace seeks out humility, not righteousness. We've, we've been uh, encountering this principle of humility versus pride in, in each of the, the kings. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is so good at humbling if necessary, even humiliating. Now, that's, where, that's where 
unrepentant sin will take us eventually is that God does the humbling. Can you imagine how humiliating it was to be captured as a king and to have your royal robes stripped off and replaced with whatever prisoners wore, have your nose pierced, inserted with chain like cattle, and then to have a 500-mile journey all the way to Babylon, maybe Nineveh. Gives you some time to think, doesn't it? Especially if you're walking or... And you begin to think thoughts like the prodigal who was serving pigs. And he started to think, what am I doing here? What have I been doing? How did I get here? Maybe dad was right. But for God to show his grace, we must humble ourselves. You realize that pride is ultimately the reason anybody will be in hell. Because it's not that somebody didn't, you know, add up enough righteousness points. Ultimately, it's pride in refusing to put their faith in the one provision for our sin, which was, of course, Christ. So John writes, whoever believes in him, Christ, that he paid for our sins, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So why are they condemned? Not because there wasn't enough righteousness in their life, nor because there was too much sin. The reason they're condemned is because of the pride of not believing, putting their faith in Christ alone. So as we understand that grace is the whole basis of our faith and our eternity is the, is the lesson that somehow grace, or rather uh, sin doesn't matter. Just go in and indulge your whole life long like Manasseh and then you know at some point at the end you put your faith in Christ and go to heaven. Oh, it matters. Because another principle we, we see here is that grace, God's grace to us may not fix the impact of our sin on others. There, there are some things grace can't do. God's grace to us cannot change the impact of our sin. His sin, on Am, his sin affected Ammon. Uh, many in the nation he led astray will not have come back. And, and we even find uh, later on in, a, in the next couple generations that when God finally brings about this judgment on the nation, it is traced back to Manasseh, nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger, even though he repented, even though he was forgiven. There were consequences on, on following generations. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple. And so grace upon his life personally could not fix the impact he had on others. So our takeaway today can dare not be that my sin's okay because God's grace will cover it. If we have an alcohol issue, God can forgive. But if we don't deal with it, we can still have an accident and injure somebody, kill somebody. Other sins and addictions will always affect health, relationships, ministry, God forgave David his adultery and, and, uh, and, and murder. 
But read the last part of 2 Samuel, and you see the impact of his sins upon his children and, and, and grandchildren. Ripple effects. So it would be very selfish for us to see grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card and uh, ignore the fact of the hurt it causes around us. So it's a, it's a sobering uh, side of grace. Fourthly, we are most like God when we show extravagant grace. I'm afraid sometimes because we have as believers a genuine sense of righteousness, we we can easily imagine that we are most like God when we can identify sin in others, especially. And so we can think critically about Christians and non-Christians alike and how sinful they are and not even realize that that self-righteousness is itself sin. The pot calling the kettle black indeed. And if we really want to imitate God, we are never more sure that we're doing that than when we show grace. Extravagant unthinkable, extreme grace. And if we can picture ourselves someday being accountable to Christ at that judgment seat, it's not the seat at which unbelievers are judged, but our life is evaluated. I I, I can never imagine Christ saying, you just showed too much grace to your spouse, to your neighbor who's so annoying and the people you worked with and the people at church, you just, you just showed too much grace. But I, I can't imagine him saying, why did you try to do my job? As James says, there's one lawgiver and judge, and it's, it's not us who criticize, demean, eye rolls, digs. So, the real question, I think, as we seek to imitate God is who, who needs that extravagant grace that God's put in our life that we can hear, well done, good and faithful man of grace, woman of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded at your grace. Help us to get a uh, clearer picture always of the seriousness of sin, our sin, and the amazing beauty of your grace. Help us not to shy away from either truth, and in fact to dare to be more and more honest and transparent about our sin, humbling ourselves fully, daily, before you, before others who are needed, that we would be more aware and more appreciative and give you more glory for your amazing grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.